I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. I'll uh, be reading verses 1 through 21 as it relates to the cleanliness laws regarding diet. Cleanliness laws regarding diet and how it is. These great outward glorious things of the Old Testament have been through Christ the substance now revealed. Been transferred to that inward work of holiness made and wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 14 beginning in verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud. Among the animals you may eat. Yet of these that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger. Because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, they are unclean for you. And the pig, because it, eat, it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch." Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds. But these are the ones you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, and the short-eared owl, the barn owl, and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hopi, and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that is dyed naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask that you might give us wisdom from your word. Help us to understand what these things are all about so that we might be a people who bear your name well, wholly devoted to the spreading of your glory and fame among the nations of this earth. We ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I didn't know you could eat a rock badger. I didn't even know there was a, such a thing as a rock badger. I imagine uh, that the Lord would, if we still lived under these dietary laws of the Old Testament, forbid us. Have you seen the little creature that comes out of the hole on the side of the hill nearby? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, it's like a groundhog or something. We don't get to eat that. Well, you at one point, we're not allowed to eat that. I don't know if anybody... Uh, could even at this point. It's just so cute. How do you get it past your eyes, as they say? I remember uh, going on a mission trip one time uh, to the great nation of Peru. And one of the delicacies that you have when you go on the picnics high in the mountains in certain regions, uh, we were in a town called Juan Cavalica that was at about 14,500 feet, where we attempted to play soccer, 
used to living at 600 feet, which was itself quite difficult. We stopped mid-game for a nice light meal of cooey, which are guinea pigs. Uh, guinea pigs are served in Peru while lying on their backs, split open with their teeth. Like, what are you doing? It, it's not easy to pick the meat off a small guinea pig. Uh, and so oftentimes when we think of these strange times and strange rules, they are quite foreign to us. And yet, because we are one people called by God to be his holy beloved bride, there are lessons for us beyond the diet, the stomach. In fact, I would argue, as would many others, that Deuteronomy 14 has very little to do with what we are to eat today. Or perhaps if you desire to write a book on dieting, in fact, one such famous book was called The Maker's Diet. It was popularized in the late 2000 years, uh, about 10, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, he, a, a gentleman by the last name of Reuben, I can't remember his first name, said, let's go by the cleanliness dietary laws of the Old Testament. Let's follow those things. The problem with that argument is this. When Christ appears to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and he says, um, you can eat whatever you want. Is God now saying um, you can abuse your body by eating unhealthy things? Or even at the very end of this text in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21, you shall not eat anything that is died naturally. Well, what's wrong with that? Except here in this same verse, the Lord says you don't eat it, but give it to your, the sojourner that is within your courts, within the gates of Jerusalem. Does God really want Israel to give unhealthy things to strangers and aliens? Of course not. So what then are these dietary laws about if they are not about our waistline or our cholesterol or our overall uh, health? It is about leading us to a place of bearing the name of God as a people wholly set apart for him. And there is a great change that takes place between the Old and New Testament. These are the things I want to focus on this evening. Three points that I want to make. The first, bearing the family name. Second, what you shall not eat. And then third, what being family is all about. What being family is all about. Now, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, over the last few chapters, what we have had are expositional sermons that cover the Ten Commandments. We've looked at the first commandment, we've looked at the second commandment, and tonight we look at the third. Now you may say, what does this have to do with thou shalt not take the Lord of thy name, the name of thy God in vain? We bear his name. And as those who bear the name of God, we are to lift it up holy in everything we do. We are marked, we are given the name of God as those who belong to the visible church. So how do we bear the family name well? Well... What does Moses begin with? Look at this first statement. You are the sons of the Lord your God. And in light of this great reality, there are some things that Israel is called not to do. You are not to cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Now, what Moses is getting to and what he continues to focus on in the dietary laws is God has given his law to Israel and the working out of the moral law of God in the age of Israel is that you are to look differently 
from the world. You are not to look at, or I'm sorry, you're not to look like the pagans who cut themselves in ritualistic practice and apparently they like to shave the front part of their head as a sign of mourning the dead. These practices Israel was to avoid in order to be consecrated to the Lord. And not just that, for you are a people, verse 2, holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the earth. You don't grieve as the nations grieve, and you don't cut yourself in religious practices like the nations do. You are to be distinct. Visibly speaking, you are to look different. Your outward appearance is evidence of what you believe in your heart. Because you belong to the Lord. Have you ever seen the cute married couples at an advanced age that walk around? Have you ever seen this in the same sort of windbreaker suit? Has anybody seen this? I'm really looking forward to when I can get away with wearing the same windbreaker suit with my wife and just, you know, walking around. Will malls exist in 30 years? And just sort of, you know, even when married couples stay together long enough, and as they live longer and longer lives, they even begin to sort of reflect one another. Or maybe you've seen uh, 101 Dalmatians. There's a scene in which you have the owner walking the dog, and the owner and the dog really reflect one another. Anybody? As a family, you begin to sort of take on the same characteristics, the things that you're interested in, the sports that you play, the shows that you watch. You begin to look alike. And the call for Israel is that they bear the name of God well by being consecrated unto him through the keeping of the law. And the the sort of emotional energy that drives that is this reality that though you were once slaves in Egypt, now you are my beloved children delivered out of Egypt and you, Israel, are to look like me. This is a timeless principle though, is it not? The entirety of the church ought to think of themselves as members of the family of God and especially, especially this is true for those who love the Father and want to be like Him. Children, one of the greatest things that you can learn when it comes to looking at your parents, you've heard this phrase before, is to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Look at the things that are good about your parents and emulate those things and the things that they are failures at. Reject those things. Don't look at your parents as though they are perfect models of righteousness. Look at them for what they are. And say, I like that about my dad or my mom. I'm going to take that characteristic and apply it to my life. This happens organically, oftentimes, especially when children are younger. And as they get older, it must become more explicit. The Lord, Yahweh, wants his children to bear his name well. Perhaps, children, you've heard your parents say, when you go out into the world, the things you do reflect upon us. What you say, all of your behavior, it reflects upon the family. Uphold the good name of the family. We are to bear the name well. We are to bear God's name well. We are to bear the name of the 
seed of the woman, the one who has revealed himself to Israel and even to us today, of course, well. And so God calls Israel to be distinct. Now, many of these things in the Old Testament do not make sense to us. And the way in which we are to make sense of them in order to sort of wade through the randomness of it all is to see that these outward markers that were to distinguish Israel from the nations were temporary and they served to show the glory and the holiness that would come when the Messiah arrived and the Spirit, though they knew nothing really of the Holy Spirit, it comes later in the New Testament, would bring about holiness in the hearts of his people. Now, in the third commandment, we find in the larger catechism this exposition. The third commandment requires the name of God, his titles, his attributes, ordinances, the word, sacrament, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holy and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing by a holy profession and answerable to conversation, yes, conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Oh. The third commandment is not an easy one to keep because the third commandment is one that requires us to put to death every sinful predilection and disposition that causes us to serve ourselves and promote our own name and our own glory and our own passions above what God calls us to do. In order to keep the third command, you must keep all of the commands. And you must, in essence, take the name of God, how he has revealed himself, all that he has given us, and we lift it up and we say, this is the most important thing in my life. That is what it means to keep the law. And so Israel was called to lift up the name of God as they were instructed in the Old Testament by doing certain things and not doing other things. You don't get to eat an eagle. Now, as soon as you hear, you don't get to eat an eagle, what are you wanting to eat? Maybe that's a bad example. As soon as your parents say, you don't get to eat that cookie, what do you want? So some of these things are hard. What if the Lord said, you don't get to eat that bacon? Okay, now we understand the tension. Why not? Well, some people would say, well, you know, it was hard for Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. They couldn't raise pigs out there. Well, why not? These are people that do not take the Old Testament and seek to apply it and understand it through the main theme of Old and New Testament. That is the revelation of the substance of the covenant that is Christ Jesus. Why would God in the Old Testament say don't eat pork, but in the New Testament say three times, Peter, eat the bacon? And then the church was never the same again. <laughs> Why? Did he, does he love us more? Does he love us less? Does he care about our health less? Did he care about the Old Testament Israelites more? Which is it? In my house, bacon is it's a treat. 
And if you're of a certain age, you get bacon. If you're a little bit younger, you get sausage. One day, you can get bacon. What's the difference? That is an important question for us. And in order to answer that question, we need to answer this question first. What is God trying to do with revelation? What is he endeavoring to teach Israel? He is endeavoring to teach Israel to see themselves as wholly distinct from the world. And so he says, you can't eat this stuff. Do not eat anything abominable. What, sh- what you shall not eat. This is the second point. You shall not eat those things that are called unclean. Now, who gets to decide what those unclean things are? God. He gets to decide those things. And they are not random because they are part of God's wisdom revealed to men. They may seem random to us, but a lot of that randomness has to, come to, has to do with the fact that we don't like God's word. And we place upon his word certain strictures and rules that do not and ought not to apply. Clean and unclean animals here are divided into three categories based upon the order in which they were created in the beginning in Genesis. Land animals, sea animals, and flying creatures. Now, of the land animals, you may eat an animal that has a split hoof and choose the cud, a ruminant animal, a cow is a four-chambered stomach, and they just spend their whole lives walking and chewing, 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 chewing. But if it's an animal that does ruminate, but doesn't have a split hoof, you can't eat that. Both must be in place. So you can't eat what? You can't eat a camel. You can't eat a rabbit. You can't eat a rock badger because they chew the cud, but their hooves are not parted. These are unclean. A pig is unclean. Though it has a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. Now, you also cannot eat those things that are already dead. You can't eat dead animals. Um, Now, that can be dangerous, right? But let's say you come across a freshly killed deer on the side of the road. I would take it home. Or take it to a processor immediately. It's good meat. Take it home. Eat it. That's a New Testament dispensational issue. Now, I'm not talking about dispensationalism as it's often referred to. I'm talking about the new covenant versus the old. Now, as it relates to sea animals, it has to have fins and it has to have scales. So no sharks, no sea cucumbers. Both are quite delicious. Sea cucumbers are not like real cucumbers that they grow in the garden. They're like worms, but they are delicious. And then air animals, things that fly. In verses 11 through 20, there are no rules really given here, except for one, you can't eat something that eats something dead. And then there's just a list. Raven, you can't even eat an ostrich. Have y'all had an ostrich steak? It's delicious. It's wonderful. Night hawks, seagulls, a hawk of any kind. If in this country you go out in your backyard and you kill a hawk, the federal government will fine you anywhere from five to $10,000. The reason for that is they are rare, and they are they're just too magnificent to kill. In the Old Testament, we see these things, and we ask ourselves, what is God talking about? It's like he's closing his eyes, and there's a list of all animals, and he's just sort of randomly pointing at things. There is no randomness to this, because it is part of the wisdom of God. The lack of randomness is not attributed to us being able to draw a line to these things. It is attributed to the wisdom of God as he reveals his Savior to us. 
And in the same way that we are not to mourn, that we are not to cut ourselves, we are not to eat like the nations if we are Old Testament Israelites so that outwardly we might reveal and show to them we are not you. You are not us. We are different. And that distinction continues. That's the shortest second point in the history of my preaching. This brings me to one of my longer points, the third point. What family is really all about? What Christ is, is the fulfillment of all of the law, and namely those laws that have been abrogated in his coming. That means done away with are those ritual laws that are Levitical laws of the tabernacle and the temple and the cleanliness laws, especially here, those dietary laws. Now in Jeremiah 30 and in Acts chapter 2, we are made aware of the great reality of the covenant that is manifested in the coming of Jesus Christ. And what we read in Jeremiah is the pouring out of Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, we see it happening. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is poured out upon the church. And what was once outwardly evidenced by dietary laws and things like it are now inwardly manifested through the giving of the Holy Spirit. There is greater outward glory in the Old Testament. There is greater inward glory in the New Testament. Let me tell you, at this point, what I am talking about are the sort of mechanical underpinnings of covenant theology. And though there is one covenant made with Adam, the covenant of grace, and you, it is one covenant because it is not made with Adam and you first. It is made through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, And through him, you. And so the covenant is constantly pointing to how Christ is the fulfillment of all that we see in the covenant of grace. Deuteronomy 14 is part of the covenant of grace. And so Deuteronomy 14 has something to do with how we are to think of how we now, the people of God, are to remain holy and bear the name of God well. How do we do that in the New Testament versus the Old Testament? Now, here's a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which the covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in greater fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are therefore not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Can anybody explain that to me? Can you give me the elevator pitch? Here's the elevator pitch. Old Testament, gold and costumes. New Testament, Christ dead and Christ risen. And so the ministers of the church do not adorn themselves with fancy garments and gold and all of these other things that point to the inward glory of the substance of what God is doing, but rather in the New Testament 
because that has been manifested in Christ. Those things have been done away with because we see the glory through the Holy Spirit. Those things are no longer necessary. Not not necessary at all. I don't need to climb into the pulpit with a crown or the golden ephod. I can wear cotton and I'm okay. But what is being dispensed through the means of grace that they call word and sacrament is far more glorious on the inside because Christ has come and the Holy Spirit has been sent out into the world. Greater outward glory, less inward glory. Greater inward glory, less outward glory. This is the change between the Old and New Testament. So what is the difference? Well, Christ has appeared. And Christ has established in his death and resurrection and with the Father, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of his presence among all flesh. What makes us different from the world is no longer what we eat and do not eat, but the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Where once in the Old Testament we are told, stay away from them. Now in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit that has been given to us says what? Go into all of the earth. Why? Because through the inward, purifying, sanctifying, transforming Holy Spirit... We are now clean. And as we go out into the world as clean ones, through the ministry of the gospel, we make others clean. We are not made unclean by them. What God is teaching Israel is that what will come in the ministry of the Messiah is a radical transformation of the way in which their very culture is organized and held up as holy. And so, when Christ comes to Peter in Acts chapter 10, this is the episode. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance or dream. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, like a tablecloth. And it was let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, the things forbidden in Deuteronomy 14. And there came a voice to him, this is Christ, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. What is Christ teaching Peter? Again, it's not about the bacon, right? It's about the Great Commission. That even as Israel was not to fellowship with the unclean of this world, Christ is now saying that which is unclean or has been unclean is no longer unclean because Christ by His Holy Spirit is making all clean. And so as Peter, a 
ritualistic, cultural, historical, faithful Jew is encountering the transformation of the covenant. And what the reality is, that reality is shifting. What he sees is, is that Christ has opened the floodgates and through the ministry of the saints, we go out and we make the world clean. And because Christ has come and the gospel has changed the way we look at the world, the world must change in our eyes. He's not just talking about food. He's talking about missions. He's talking about the Gentiles. And the way in which we are made clean is not by what we eat and do not eat. It is by our life in the Spirit. These dietary laws are fulfilled by Christ by sending the Holy Spirit into the world. So it is no longer, look at Colossians 2, if you want to turn there. Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. They are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. It's the same as circumcision. There are certain things that have changed because of the coming of Christ and was what was once required by the law in order to reveal a heart of one who desired to bear the name of God among people that were falling away, who were being judged by God, God said to Israel, you set yourselves apart wholly to me as acts of tests and allegiance. He now through his Holy Spirit makes sure and guaranteed Christ is the one who qualifies us. So you can eat an eagle. I don't recommend it. But you can eat whatever. Now, there are other laws that apply, like gluttony, right? It's a keeping of the sixth commandment. Drunkenness is a violation of the sixth commandment, which we just read about. But as it relates to the dietary laws of the Old Testament, what Christ has changed is the nature by which we are made clean. It is not by what we do and do not do as it relates to the flesh in terms of what we eat, but the Holy Spirit who now indwells us. We are clean. And we are made clean by Christ's Spirit who lives within us. So... What it does is it turns our eyes not away from the nations. Let's not be part of that. But it now turns our eyes to the nations so that we can see ourselves as salt and light. We can remain incorruptible as we go forth into the nations because the one who makes us holy lives within us. That is where holiness comes from. And praise God that Christ has sent his spirit into the world so that we can not only have this freedom to eat whatever we like, but that we can go forth into the nations having the spirit within us and we can, by the faithful ministry of the word, 
see people also made clean. Christ, by his spirit, is transforming the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we do ask.